Chapter thirty two of the Morgesons. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Julia Lenarden. On Tuesday morning, Adelaide set out invitations to a farewell entertainment, as she called it, for Tuesday evening. Mrs. Somers, affecting great interest in it, engaged my services in wiping the dust from glass and china, too valuable, she said, for servants to handle. We spent a part of the morning in the dining-room and pantry. Anne was with us. If she went out, Mrs. Somers was silent. When present, she chatted. While we were busy, Desmond came in, in riding trousers and a whip in hand. "'What nonsense!' he said, touching my hand with the whiplash. "'Will you ride with me after dinner?' "'I must have the horses at three o'clock,' said his mother, "'to go to Mrs. Flint's funeral. She was a family friend, you know.' The funeral could not be postponed, even for Desmond. But he grew ill-humoured at once, swore at Murphy, who was packing a waiter at the sideboard for rattling the plates, called Anne a minx, because she laughed at him, and bit a cigar to pieces because he could not light it. Rash had followed him, his nose against his velveteens, and entreated to go with him. I was pleased at this sign of amity between them. At a harder push than common, he looked down and kicked him away. "'Noble creature,' I said, "'try your whip on him. Rash, go to your master.' And I opened the door. Two smaller dogs, Desmond's property, made a rush to come in, but I shut them out, whereat they whined so loudly that Mrs. Somers was provoked to attack him for bringing his dogs in the house. An altercation took place, and was ended by Desmond declaring that he was on his way after a bitch-terrier to bring it home. He went out, giving me a look from the door, which I answered with a smile that made him stamp all the way through the hall. Mrs. Somers' feelings, as she heard him, peeped out at me. Groaning in spirit, I finished my last saucer, and betook myself to my room and read, till summoned by Mrs. Somers to a consultation respecting the furniture coverings. Desmond came home, but spoke to no one, hovering in my vicinity as on the day before. In the afternoon, Adelaide and I went in the carriage to make calls upon those we did not expect to see in the evening. She wrote P.P.C. on my cards, and laughed at the idea of paying farewell visits to strangers. The last one was made to Mrs. Hepburn. A soft melancholy crept over me when I entered the room where I had met Desmond last. We should probably not see each other alone again. Mrs. Somers' policy to that effect would be a success, for I should make no opposition to it. Not a word of my feelings could I speak to Mrs. Hepburn. Adelaide was there provided I had the impulse, and Mrs. Hepburn would be the last to forgive me should I make the conventional mistake of a scene or an aside. This old lady had taught me something. I went to the window, curious to know whether any nerve of association would vibrate again. Nothing stirred me. The machinery which had agitated and controlled me was a fete. Mrs. Hepburn said, as we were taking leave, "'If you come to Bellum next year, and I am above the sod, "'I invite you to pass a month with me. "'Let it be in the summer. "'I ride, then, and I should like you for a companion.' "'She might have seen irresolution in me, for she added quickly, "'You need not promise. Let time decide. 
and shook my hands kindly. "'Hep is smitten with you, in her selfish way,' Adelaide remarked, as we rode from the door. She ordered the coachman to drive home by the Leslie house, which he wanted me to see. A great-aunt had lived and died there, leaving the house, one of the oldest in Bellum, to her brother Ned. "'Who is he like?' "'Desmond, but worse. There's only a year's difference in their ages. They were educated together, kept in the nursery till they were great boys and tyrants, and then sent abroad. They were in Amiens three years. There are Desmond and Ben. They are walking in the street we are passing.' She looked out. "'They are quarrelling, I dare say. Ben is a prig, and preaches to Des.' While we were in the house, and Adelaide talked with the old servant of her aunt, my thoughts were occupied with Desmond. What had they quarrelled on? Desmond was pale and laughed, but Ben was red and looked angry. "'Why do you look at me so fixedly?' Adelaide asked, when we were in the carriage again. It was on my tongue to say, "'Because I am beset.' I did not, however. Instead, I asked her if she ever noticed what rigid look people wore in their best bonnets, and holding a card-case. She said, yes, and shook out her handkerchief, as if to correct her own rigidity. After an early tea, she compelled me to sing, and we delayed dressing until Mrs. Somers bloomed in, with a purple satin and feather headdress. "'Now we must go,' she said, "'and get ready.' "'What shall you wear?' Mrs. Somers asked, advising a certain ugly claret-coloured silk. "'Be sure not,' said Adelaide, on the stairs. "'That dress makes your hair too yellow.' I heard loud laughing in the third story and heavy steps while I was in my room, and when I went down I saw two gentlemen in evening dress standing by Desmond at the piano, singing, "'Fill, fill the sparkling brimmer.' They were, as Anne informed me, college friends of Des, who had arrived for a few days' visit, she supposed. Disagreeable persons, of course. They were often in Bellum to ride, fish, or play billiards. "'Pa hates them,' she said in conclusion. Mr. Somers, entering at this moment, in his diplomatique style, his gouty white hands shaded with wristbands, and his throat tied with a white cravat, appeared to contradict her assertion. He was so affable in his salutations to the young men. Desmond turned from the piano when he heard his father's voice, and caught sight of me. He started toward me, but his attention was claimed by one of the gentlemen, who had been giving me a prolonged stare, and he dropped back on his seat, with an indifferent air, answering some question relating to myself. He looked as when I first saw him, flushed, haughty, and bored. His hair and dress were disordered, his boots splashed with mud, and it was evident that he did not intend to appear at the party. Adelaide called me to remain by her, but I slipped away when I thought no more would arrive, and sought a retired corner, to which Mr. Somers brought Desmond's friends, introducing them as the sons of his college chums, and leaving them, one lolling against the mantel, the other over the back of a chair. They were muzzy with drink, and seemed to grow warm as I looked from one to the other, with an attentive air. "'You are visiting in Bellum,' said one. "'That is true,' I replied. "'It is too confoundedly aristocratic for me. It knocks Beacon Street into nothingness.' "'Where is Beacon Street?' "'You don't know that, nor the Mall?' "'No.' Our conversation was interrupted by Ben, 
whom I had not seen since the day before. He had been out of town, transacting some business for his father. We looked at each other without speaking, but divined each other's thoughts. "'You are as true and noble as I think you are, Cassie. I must have it so. You shall not thwart me. "'Faithful and good Ben, do you pass a sufficiently strict examination upon yourself?' "'Are you not disposed to carry through your own ideas without considering me?' "'Whatever our internal comments were, "'we smiled upon each other with the sincerity of friendship, "'and I detected Mr. Digby in the act of elevating his eyebrows at Mr. Devereux, "'who signified his opinion by telegraphing back, "'It is all over with them.' "'Hey, Summers,' said the first, "'what are you doing nowadays?' "'Pretty much the same work as I have always had on hand. "'Do you mean stick to Bellum? "'No.' "'I thought so. "'But what has come over Des lately? "'He is spoony. "'He is going backward, maybe, "'to some course he omitted in his career with you fellows. "'We must run the same round somehow, you know.' "'He'll not find much reason for it when he arrives,' Mr. Devereux said. Miss Munster joined us, with the intention of breaking up our conclave, and soon moved away with Mr. Digby and Devereux in her train. "'I have changed my mind,' said Ben, "'about going home with you. "'Are your plans growing complicated again? "'Can you go to Surrey alone? "'Why not, pray? "'I have an idea of going to Switzerland to spend the summer. "'Will Veronica be ready in the autumn?' "'How can I answer?' "'Shall you not take leave of her?' "'Perhaps. Yes, I must,' he said excitedly. "'But to-morrow we will talk more about it. "'I shall go to Boston with you. "'Pa is going, too. "'How well you look to-night, Cassie. "'What sort of dress is this?' "'Taking up a fold of it. "'Is it cotton silk or silk cotton? "'It is soft and light. "'How delicate you are, with your gold hair and morning-glory eyes. "'How poetical!' "'My dress is new and was made by Adelaide's dressmaker. "'Mother beckons me. "'What a headdress that is of hers!' "'What beckons you to go to Switzerland?' I mused. "'I listened for Desmond's voice, "'which would have sounded like a silver bell "'in the loud, coarse buzz which pervaded the rooms. "'All the women were talking shrill, "'and the men answering in falsetto. "'He was not among them, "'and I moved to and fro unnoticed.' for the tide of entertainment had set in, and I could withdraw if I chose. I took a chair near an open door, commanded a view into a small room on the other side of the hall, opened only on occasions like these. There was no one in it. Perceiving that my shoelace was untied, I stooped to refasten it, and when I looked in the room again, saw Desmond standing under the chandelier, his hands in his pockets, his eyes on the floor, his hair disordered and falling over his forehead. Its blackness was intense against the relief of the crimson wallpaper. Was it that which had unaccountably changed his appearance? He raised his head, looked across the hall, and saw me. "'Come here,' he signalled. I rose like an automaton and cast an involuntary glance about me. The guests were filing through the drawing-room into the room where refreshments were laid. When the last had gone, I left the friendly protection of the niche by the fireplace, and stood so near him that I saw his nostrils quiver. Then there came into his face an expression of pain, which softened it. 
I had wished him to please me. Now I wished to please him. It seemed he had no intention of speaking, and that he had called me to him to witness a struggle which I must find a key to hereafter, in the depths of my own heart. I watched him in silence, and it passed. As he pushed the door to with his foot, the movement caused something to swing and glitter against his breast. A ring on his watch-ribbon, smaller than I could wear, a woman's ruby ring. The small, feminine imp, who abides with those who have beams in their eyes, and helps them to extract motes from the eyes of others, inspired me. I pointed to the ring. Dropping his eyes, he said, "'I loved her shamefully.' and she loved me shamefully. When shall I take it off? Cursed sign! And he snapped it with his thumb and finger. I grew rigid with virtue. You may not conjure up any tragic ideas on the subject. She is no outcast. She is here to-night. If there was ruin, it was mutual. And your other faults? Ah, he said, with a terrible accent, we shall see. There was a tap on the door. It was Ben's. I fell back a step, and he came in. "'Will you bring Cassandra into the supper-room?' he said, turning pale. "'No.' "'Come with me, then. You must.' And he put my arm in his. "'Hail and farewell, Cassandra,' said Desmond, standing before the door. "'Give me your hand.' I gave him both my hands. He kissed one, and then the other and moved to let us pass out. But Ben did not go. He fumbled for his handkerchief to wipe his forehead, on which stood beads of sweat. "'Allons, Ben,' I said. "'Go on, go on,' said Desmond, holding the door wide open. A painful curiosity made me anxious to discover the owner of the ruby ring. The friendly but narrow-minded imp I have spoken of composed speeches, with which I might assail her, should she be found. I looked in vain at every woman present. There was not a sorrowful or guilty face among them. Another feeling took the place of my curiosity. I forgot the woman I was seeking, to remember the love I bore Desmond. I was mad for the sight of him, mad to touch his hand once more. I could have put the asp on my breast to suck me to sleep, as Cleopatra did, but Caesar was in the way. He stayed by me till the lights were turned down. Digby and Devereux were commenting on Desmond's disappearance, and Mrs. Somers was politely yawning, waiting their call for candles. "'If you are to accompany me, Ben,' I said, "'now is the time.' And he slipped out. He preserved a determined silence. I shook him and said, "'Veronica!' He put his hand over my mouth with an indignant look, which was lost upon me, for I whispered in his ear, "'Do you know that I love Desmond?' "'Will you bring him into our paradise?' "'Where?' "'Our home in Surrey.' "'Won't an angel with a flaming sword make it piquant?' "'If you marry Desmond Somers,' he said austerely, "'you will contradict three lives, yours, mine, and Veronica's. What beast was it that suggested this horrible discord? Have you so much passion that you cannot discern the future you offer yourself? Imperator, you have an agreeable way of putting things, but they are coming through the hall. Good night. 
End of chapter 32